Well, good morning. And as Brian mentioned, we're going to be in Psalm 13, so let me encourage us all to turn there together. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love you to follow along with us in a Blue Pew Bible. And you can find Psalm 13 on page 453. But we are looking forward to continuing our worship this morning from... um, 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. We'll be having an outdoor family worship service. Uh, so for those of you who normally come to the 11 a.m. indoor service and are here right now, I'm just I'm proud of you. I'm just proud of you that you just came. I hope I'll keep you awake. Uh, but we're looking forward to having that lawn filled up with our families and Miss Megan leading them. Uh, if there are also any families with younger children here, we do have uh, the service streaming down the hall in uh, some of those rooms that you're free at any time to go in, and the uh, kids can be in those rooms, and you'll still be able to, uh, to follow along in the service. But um, just before we do get uh, started in Psalm 13, I want to speak briefly to a letter that got mailed out this past week. Uh, many of you probably received it in your mail yesterday, if you checked your mail yesterday. If not, you'll probably be getting it in the next day or two. Um, and I'm going to spend really more time next Sunday before the sermon on uh, next Sunday, July 25th, kind of giving a little bit of a state of where we are as a church, where we're going, how's God moving and transitioning our church right now. Uh, we're in a really interesting place as a church as we stand here in mid July, and uh, as we just continue to do what we've always done, and that just have hand to the plow, be faithful to the call that God has given us as a church, and the vision he has casted for us, and trust that whatever he wants to do in terms of blessing that or making that fruitful, that that's up to him, that's not up to us, we be faithful, he handles the fruitful, um, well, God is doing something here at Grace Church, and, and so we also have the call to respond to that fruitfulness and steward it in a certain way. So uh, next week, I'm going to just be providing just a little bit more of kind of that update and kind of where we're going and casting that vision for us. So uh, be sure next Sunday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. indoor to, to join us, uh, or if you're going to be away, be sure to um, tune in to the live stream at some point um, But if we do not have your mailing address, you did not get a letter uh, this past week. And if you're relatively new, there's a good chance we don't have your uh, mailing address. So if you have not received a letter, maybe you've never gotten a mailing from Grace Church, uh, we have copies of the letter at Grace Connect. Uh, So there's plenty there. Just grab one on your way out. It'd be really helpful to uh, read going into next Sunday. Um, And again, if you got it in the mail, but... If you're like us, it takes you about a week to read the mail you get, uh, then uh, just be sure to kind of have that and read that uh, going into next Sunday. All right, well, there's an author named uh, Soon Chan Ra who wrote an article years ago, uh, but not too long ago, uh, and it was entitled, quote, The American Church's Absence of Lament. And he speaks about and writes about how trends across kind of church worship gatherings, especially especially the areas within the American church that seem to be growing the fastest over the last 50 years, have also seen a growing disappearance of stories of suffering and lament. And he says the evidence where you can kind of just see this most starkly is seen in the realm of music. 
So he kind of took some um, various denominations and, and, and broke into their latest hymnals, all right? So if you don't know what a hymnal is, Google it, all right? But um, the, the looked at the hymnals, you know, Baptist, Church of Christ, Presbyterian, Methodism, all across different denominations, and found that there was an average of 10 to 13% of the hymns in hymnals could be categorized as songs of lament, and so you may say, wait, while we do very much value hymns and sing them at Grace Church, we don't have hymnals, and we often also sing what has become known as contemporary Christian music. Well, the CCLI, which is the organization that oversees the licensing of contemporary worship songs to churches, uh, they release a report every year containing the top 100 songs that have been employed by churches over the past year in their church gatherings, the top 100 songs sung on Sunday morning, and analyzing that top 100, there were five that could be categorized as songs of lament. Half of the percentage of the already low percentage contained in hymnals. And the concern that Sunrin Rod notes in his article is that if you were to look at the songbook of the Bible, which is often what we refer to as the Psalms as, Nearly 50% could be categorized as songs or psalms of lament. And, you know, we could probably list several reasons, you know, theories as to why this is the case, why there's this huge drop-off. Um, I think probably most prominently in that is that the fastest growing version of Christianity over the last 100 years in this country, especially over the last 50 years, is the kind of Christianity that shows that salvation leads to a healthy and wealthy life. You, you trust in Jesus, and there's not really room for sadness in that message. Because we're Christians, and we don't suffer when we're on God's side. God's on your side. How would you go through trouble? God wants you to be healthy. He wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to be happy. So not a lot of room for songs of lament in that messaging. There could be, and maybe this is one that maybe you know, us at Grace Church could find ourselves honestly struggling with, is that a guilt of thinking that it is ever wrong to lament. That, that it's not right to question God. That, that that would make you maybe appear to be a weak Christian or an immature Christian. And so we maybe m might not say this, but we functionally live lives of this kind of fake it till you make it, right? Kind of just wash your face and, and get going. Because you're a Christian. Or there's the pretty significant consumerist mentality within our churches because we're a very consumerist, individualistic culture that we're kind of saying, man, Monday to Saturday, my life's kind of hard enough. If I'm actually going to take the time to go to church and sit in a wooden pew and listen to you for several minutes, I don't want to hear about lament. My life's hard enough. I want Sunday to make me feel good. Make me forget about that pain in my life, not remind me about it or the fallenness of the world. Let's have some fun in church. I think that's part of it. And then on a more kind of corporate um, element, there's, in general, seems to be a refusal to acknowledge pain or injustices that have happened in the past. And the reality is that, listen, the, the past is the past. We should focus on the present and the future. Stop looking backward and constantly talking about what was true in this country or in the church. Let's just full steam ahead. But you add it all up, 
And there's probably several more reasons that you could probably think of that why that might be the case. A large portion of the American church has found lament to be an endangered species. So what does a church lose if it loses its ability to lament? How can lament be reconciled with the truth of the gospel and the joy of salvation? That's why we're going into Psalm 13 in our summer series going through the Psalms. If you remember from last week, there's kind of six categories of Psalms we're going to be looking through. Uh, and, and throughout the summer, we're going to do three Sundays on the Psalms of Lament. So we're not going to say everything there is to say about lament, but we're going to break into it. And Psalm 13, I think, provides kind of a template for all lament psalms. So with that said, follow along as I read it. It's a relatively short psalm. We're going to read the six verses here. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. There's a pastor out in Indiana. His name is Mark Rogop. He wrote two books in the last couple of years on the topic of lament. And he says, quote, lament enters the complicated space, the complicated space of deep disappointment and lingering hurt. It then boldly reaffirms the trustworthiness of God. So as an aside, those two books, if you want to quickly write them down, I would really recommend them. The first one's called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. Again, Mark Rogop. His second book that kind of launched off his first one is called Weep With Me. Weep With Me, How Lament Opens a Door to Racial Reconciliation. Two books I would recommend. Um, But this morning, I want us to see Grace Church... How God's people, both yesterday and today, can enter into both the complicated spaces of disappointment and lingering pain that we have experienced. Many of you right now maybe are experiencing it. And if you haven't and are not, just wait a little bit longer. In due time, it will come. To enter that space, again, complicated space of pain and end the trustworthiness of God and not feel like you got to, in order to believe one, you have to neglect the other. That's biblical lament, entering these two together. And so we're going to look at kind of the three, uh, basically, stanzas. The psalm breaks into three parts pretty simply, verses 1 and 2, then verses 3 and 4, then verses 5 and 6. So first with verses 1 and 2, we see deep pain, deep pain. 
You know, the, the, when you talk about poetry, especially ancient Hebrew poetry, the structure of a psalm can, can kind of say something in and of itself. So the structure of Psalm 13, again, three stanzas broken up in verses 1 and 2, 3 and 4, 5 and 6. The first one is the longest, indicating that this season of despair he is in has been and is a long-term struggle. And so we're going to reflect that in our sermon. We're going to spend the most amount of our time in this first stanza that indicates deep pain. This psalm, along with over 70 of the 150 psalms, was written by King David. And he begins with four questions. If you were here for last week, Psalm 8, also written by David, he came out of the gate praising God. Came out hot, and now he comes out hot again, but now in the form of lament. He starts with four questions that all begin with the same two words How long? Church, how many of you are asking right now, How long? How long? David's going to give us kind of these four categories of lament with each question. We're going to take them one at a time. Number one, abandonment. You know, it's one thing to go through something where you feel like God is silent. Maybe you've felt that before. Like, God, I can't hear you in this. I can't see you in this. You feel like God is silent. But listen, it is a whole other level to feel like he's not there. Abandonment is the peak of relational pain. To be abandoned creates pain not merely for being alone, but it's the fact that at one time you were not alone, and now you are. And the question that follows it, will you forget me forever? That's a question that can only be asked by someone who at one time felt connected to God. This is not a stranger to God. There is a relationship here, and now on David's side, he's sitting here, something's going on in his life where he's feeling like he's alone now. And this question, in particular, does not even indicate the intensity of a trial he's facing as much as it indicates the length of time he has been facing it, right? There are hints as to what this trial might be later in this psalm. But the point to notice here is that this has been a long time. This is not one bad day and David's going, how long? Things did not just get bad. They've been bad for a while. God, will you forget me forever? Is this just the way it is now? And as I was thinking about this, it is true that the length of a trial is often what breaks us even more than the intensity of a trial. And and we really see this no uh, more clearly than we do in the story of Job. Right? There's no one in the history of the world whose suffering has been more chronicled than this man named Job. And he faced both the intensity of a trial but also the length. And James Boyce points out that the length of Job's trial of feeling abandoned by God, that was actually harder. So Job starts, if you're not familiar with the book of Job, it starts in chapter 1. This man after, uh, who, who God said, I, I delight in, he follows me, he's faithful. And then chapter 1, he loses his children and possessions in a moment. His wealth. 
Everything is just gone. And chapter ends, chapter one ends with this phrase, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That Job just faces intense trial and that's his reaction at the end. But the thing is, the book of Job, it's not one chapter. It's 44 chapters. It's the most, I think, physically taxing book to read in your Bible. And as time wore on, what broke Job was the moment when he realized, I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel here. I don't see where this ends. Where he did not feel the presence of the Lord over a long period of time, and he was driven to despair. Because when you experience the true presence of God, not just talking about it, you feel in your bones the presence of the Lord and moments that you have felt close to the Lord. Doesn't that surpass anything this world has to offer? Like who cares what the world can provide when you experience and taste the presence of the Lord? And when that feeling disappears, it's worse than losing anything in the world. And as I said earlier, I think there is something in us, whether we've been taught this or we just grow to assume this or, or the enemy is speaking these lies into our lives, that we do not allow ourselves to, to admit the times where we feel abandoned by God. We can't say that. You can't question him. You can't speak like that. We, we only speak praise, never speak lament. And then that adds this added layer of spiritual guilt that's like throwing gas on an already burning inferno of struggle in your soul. Abandonment. It's one thing to go through a trial. Again, it's a whole deeper level to feel like you're going through it alone. And then it is terrifyingly agonizing when you admit, I don't even feel like God's here right now. It's the first category of lament first reason he asks how long. The second, though, is due to withholding blessing. Withholding blessing. Second half of verse one, how long will you hide your face from me? The, the, the face of God is a commonly used expression in the Old Testament, and it kind of means this experiencing his presence, experiencing his blessing, that God looks upon his people. His face is towards his people. He sees them. It's the moment in Exodus 2 when the Hebrews were pinned under the oppression of slavery in Egypt. And their groaning went up to the Lord day and night. In the end of Exodus 2 we read, and God saw the people of Israel and God knew. His face was upon them. Next chapter he raises up this man named Moses in the wilderness at a burning bush. He saw them. His blessing then was going to be upon them for deliverance. And so David, he knows his church history, so to speak. He knows the history of God's people in Israel. He's now king over Israel, God's covenant people. And that is the very man who's saying, Lord, how long are you going to withhold that blessing of seeing me, of seeing us? Something changed. Is your favor gone? It's the deep pain of something that once was true, the face of God shone upon them, and now it does not appear to be true anymore. We know what this is like. 
a marriage where we were once close. We were, we were for one another, and now it, something's changed. Now there's this distance here. God, are you withholding blessing in my marriage? A friendship that was once so dear, but, but, but you've been replaced by, by someone else. Lord, are you withholding blessing here? A child who was once so close to you, but as they've grown, the relationship's been torn apart, and it's been torn apart by things happening in the world and by politics and generational disagreements and things that are kind of culturally heavy topics, and we can't even, like, talk to each other anymore without fighting like that. Lord, how did it get like this? A skill, an ability that was so evident, you were so gifted, and now it's been ravaged by injury or an illness. Lord, are you withholding that blessing from me? A job that was so secure and so prosperous, but been shipwrecked by a downturn in the economy that had nothing to do with me and nothing to do with even my company, but general bigger forces in the company has now shipwrecked my career path. Lord, what is going on? There's corporate elements too, a people pinned under, again, the institution of slavery, a society robbed of the freedoms and practices by a microscopic virus, all these things that are just ravaging us. Lord, what is going on? Everything's changed. How long? Is that blessing gone? That's number two. Third question is a sorrowful spirit. It's a mouthful. A sorrowful spirit. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? One of the cruel realities of life in a fallen world is that when your spirits are high and you're feeling good and you're feeling the presence of God and you're optimistic and you're joyful, don't your days fly by? It just goes so fast, like those seasons of life that you just love and you just want to hold on to, but they feel just so fleeting. And yet, on the other side, the seasons when our spirits are downcast, we're feeling sorrow, we're sad. Don't those days crawl? Every hour feels like a day. Every minute feels like an hour. And David, king over Israel, is saying, Lord, how long am I just going to spend the entire day depressed? We speak and preach a lot about, or try to, depression and anxiety, and how those two are medically linked often, and how in general, in a fallen world, all people struggle with depression and anxiety at least sometimes, and some people struggle with depression and anxiety all the time, right? Right? And there's differences of what you would call circumstantial versus clinical, that all people can face a circumstance that can lead to a lifelong or long-term sorrow. Like, again, this is morbid, but this is a psalm of lament. Like, we're all one phone call away, right? Things completely out of control that changed our life together. And then there are the fact that um, also there are uh, what you might call clinical reasons that your brain maybe is wired in such a way that's more prone towards melancholy or depression or anxiety or things are going to kind of just feel like you're going to be dealing with that all the time. But whether circumstantial or clinical or a little bit of both, that gets compounded 
when they consider, where is the Lord in this? Where is the Lord in a long-term struggle? I think about a couple who yearns to grow their family and have children. But for reasons that might be known, but often unknown, they've not been able to get pregnant. The long-term struggle of cycle and cycle of disappointment. How long, Lord? And then I think of the parents, and particularly the mother of a newborn, who is so grateful for that blessing and yet struggles with this perpetual exhaustion and, and, and lack of sleep, and the days just kind of crawl by, and it's combined with often hormonal aspects of postpartum depression, and yet they feel trapped because they feel like they can't complain because they have this blessing, but this is really hard. And they're left to suffer alone at 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. I can't do this anymore. But I can't say it. How long? And then again, thinking about on the kind of mental illness side or the clinical side where church has a kind of rough track record with how to deal with this well, of even just acknowledging it and addressing it at times when Christians can unintentionally or at times even worse intentionally do harm by placing blame on the person and not taking into account maybe their temperament as people who've been made in the image of God. There's a man that uh, Pastor Joe and I quote often, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He, he was a pastor in the middle of the 20th century in England. Um, and he was way ahead of his time in addressing the uh, realities of depression and anxiety. You know, middle of the 20th century. And I think one of the biggest reasons why is that before he entered ministry, he was a doctor. A medical doctor. And in his book, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures, which, by the way, there's a copy in the library, he says this, I'll have the quote on the screen, quote, we begin by saying that temperament, psychology, and makeup do not make the slightest difference in the matter of our salvation. Amen, church? That does not set you back. That does make, not make you untouchable or unsavable. That our temperament, wherever, however God has designed us, matters for nothing of whether or not we are saved because we are saved by Christ alone, by faith alone. Back to the quote. Sorry, that was me. That is, thank God, the very basis of our position as Christians. There is a type of person who is particularly prone to spiritual depression. That does not mean that they are any worse than others. Indeed, I can make out a good case for saying that quite often the people who stand out most gloriously in the history of the church are people of the very type we are now considering. You cannot isolate the spiritual from the physical, for we are one body, mind, and spirit. The greatest and the best Christians, when they are physically weak, are more prone to an attack of spiritual depression than at any time. So again, in terms of salvation, our clinical makeup makes no difference, and we affirm that some people are more prone to depression and melancholy, and they're no less Christian, they're no less even mature even, but they probably deal with a greater layer of sorrow that others may not. The reality that, that can add to the pain that God allowed that in me. So whether circumstantial or clinical, we question, when will it change? Lord, when will it change? Will it ever change? Will my sorrow ever go away? Or am I going to be like this forever? All right, 
Last how long question, number four. David speaks of the presence of an enemy. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And if you were to read David's story from the time of, becoming, of being this kind of lowly shepherd, rising to become a king, you would see how often David was chased by, surrounded by, have his life threatened by armies and rulers, and at times his own children would rise up to die and destroy him. There was prolonged times in the wilderness where this psalm could have been written, or he was thinking about as he wrote it, Lord, how long? I'm the king of your covenant people. How long is the enemy going to exalt over me? And I think as we read this now, we do have to be careful, especially when reading the Psalms, because when we see the word enemy, and you'll see it a lot in the Psalms, um, across history, enemies have exalted over God's people, always in the form to try to oppress God's people. You had the Israelites in Egypt. You had when Israel and Judah were then taken into exile into Babylon. You have in the New Testament, to a lesser extent, but the Jewish people and the early church under the oppression of Rome. You go across church history and and the history of even God's covenant people being under the reign of oppression. You have African Americans under the reign of chattel slavery in our own country. You have today the sex slave trade. You have churches in uh, areas of the country that are within uh, government rule that do not allow free form of worship. We can't just open the doors up and put flags outside to welcome people in. It's lock the doors, have lookouts, secret quietly in worship. This is still true in areas. The vast majority of us don't have human enemies like this. And even if we did, I think the primary application of the word enemy in the Psalms is for the spiritual enemy who is trying to destroy, steal, and separate us from God. That's real. That is very much real, and we often, because we don't deal with a lot of physical enemies like that, we, we completely neglect the spiritual enemy who's doing a really good job of doing it. And there is an anguish here from David that I think is physical in his circumstances, but I think he even is experiencing and um, proclaiming the anguish from the spiritual separation he has from God. The enemy, Satan, who, as Peter writes, is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. How long, Lord? How long will our, enemies, will our lives be consumed by an enemy? So let's be sure we read that. Okay, your boss who you report to that you don't like, probably not the enemy David is speaking of here. All right, your family member who voted differently than you last fall, probably not your enemy fellow church member who might hold some different convictions, like like you can have disagreements, even really tense ones, but I wouldn't put them into the text of Psalm 13. That's probably just someone you disagree with. But he's here talking about the, um, the oppression of an enemy that he feels on his life, and again, that's very real. All right, I told you we're going to spend the most time in verses 1 and 2, that we need to sit in that not gloss over it, not just merely acknowledge it. And while we need to sit in it, we also don't stay there, because David doesn't stay there. He moves on to verse 3, from deep pain to desperate prayer. Here's the turn, from deep pain to desperate prayer. It's the turning point for David. Listen really close. 
His circumstances did not change in verse 3. Not sure what that is. His circumstances did not change, but the urgent need for God to intervene broke into the scene. And, and so this is vital for us. I think we'll probably get that taken care of. If I was smarter, I would go unplug something, but then something blows up. All right? That's how this, this is how that ends. So I look nervously to AJ. He's going to come save the day for us. All right, let's keep going. But Because this is like, again, maybe this is spiritual warfare. I don't know. But this is the important part of the psalm, right? Like we can't get distracted here. What do you do when the darkness will not lift? What do you do when you're facing a trial that will never seem to end? This is the turn, church. Deep pain that can lead to desperate prayer. Here's what you won't see in Psalm 13, in any of those six verses. You won't see a confession. You notice that? David's not repenting here. That, that lamenting does not always mean repenting. He's not apologizing to God for questioning him. And the reason, again, is that not all biblical lament is the experience of pain uh, that comes from your own sin. That's possible, this gets a little confusing. It's possible. You can flip in your Bible and go to Psalm 51, also written by David. Psalm 51 was a lament of confession after he messed up pretty badly. And so you could be lamenting over the brokenness of your sin, and we should search our hearts for that. But the lament you feel in your heart is not always due to sin. You will not find a confession in Psalm 13. Feeling abandoned by God does not always equate to the fact that you sinned against God. So David does not confess, but he does shift. He does not confess, but he does shift his mindset. At this moment, here's what's so vital. Church, please listen to this. He shifts from what he feels to what he knows. Can we sit in that for a second? He shifts from what he feels to what he knows. God made us with feelings. God made us with emotions as embodied people, emotional, physical. And while our feelings can and often do align with truth, there are times when your feelings will contradict what is true. And the daily practice we submit to is this. Do my feelings today align with God's standard of truth? Revealed by his spirit to us, through his word to us. In his book, Weep With Me, Brokup writes this, and I'm going to have it on the screen because, again, this is the turn. Quote, asking boldly moves from what is wrong to what is true. It reminds our hearts about the promises of the Bible. In this way, lament cuts through the disorienting cloud of hurt and the feelings of powerlessness. Here's the thing about biblical lament. Moving to what is true from what is wrong is not something that takes place after the trial is over. It happens in the very midst of it. Moving to ask what is true shows that deep down, beneath the up and down feelings we experience, that the Holy Spirit is in you. The Holy Spirit is in you, and the Holy Spirit that is in you is more powerful than the bad things that might be happening to you. Amen? And so we want to go from that place and say, what is wrong right now to what is true? 
And his presence upon, in your life is, is not reliant on you feeling him there. It's reliant on the promise that he will never leave you. So when you're feeling abandoned, when you're asking how long, when you feel like you're losing your grip on God, I feel like I had a good feeling on God and I'm starting not to feel him as well. It's the moment when you realize you've lost your grip that this whole time it was his grip on us that had you. It's like when I have one of my children on my shoulders and when you first put a small child on your shoulders, you get the death grip, like they might suffocate you, right? Like they're just like holding on for dear life, but they're little and they get tired. And, and, and what happens is they have the moment that they either get distracted, they get tired, and they lose their grip upon you. And then you can feel this little body jolt and they realize they don't have the grip, the little freak out moment that they have. But then that's the moment, Lord willing, that they realize that my grip on them is why they were up there all along. That their safety and security was not contingent on their grip on me because I had them. That's us with the Lord. And sometimes you have to lose your grip to realize that it was his grip on you all along. It's not a sin to ask what is wrong and how long. But we don't stay there either. We shift to ask what is true. And what is true is not only that he will never leave you nor forsake you, but as Psalm 34, 18 promises, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And he saves the crushed in spirit. Now we have to make sure we fight for clarity here, right? Because I talked about earlier the way that the church can have a bad track, track record for talking and with people who are in a state where they're asking how long. Because there could be really something really damaging to saying that, well, you must not be praying then. And, and again, unintentionally kind of heaping shame on a person who's already kind of down and out. You're like, well, you just, have you tried praying before? The Bible first says, weep with those who weep. Enter into that space with them. And be praying for them. And then wherever the Spirit leads, speak compassionately into them. This is not a cold, hey, just pray. You should try praying. It's a fierce, spirit-driven conviction to cry out to God and to ask him to intervene, ask him to reveal himself. David says three things. Consider me. Also can be translated, look upon me. We saw that in Psalm 8 last week too. Answer me and light up my eyes. Look at me, speak to me, and heal me, Lord. This is not a cold-hearted prayer. This is desperate, spirit filled. It's a prayer of angst. Primarily asking for his presence, not just his immediate deliverance. And so while those who do struggle with what we might consider clinical anxiety, they face a higher hill to climb. The intended direction is always to be brought back into God's presence. And as someone who has certainly had seasons and times where I feel greater angst, I know I do not struggle with clinical anxiety or depression, and so I need to seek to navigate a space of helping me to pastor and lead people who do and lead them to the Lord, not in a way that shames them, but says, come on now, come with me here. And I quoted Jasmine Holmes back in the Sermon on the Mount in May, heard a lot of positive feedback from kind of that statement that she made, so I'm going to say it again to either remind you or if you had not heard it. 
Jasmine Holmes. She's an author, podcaster, who struggles deeply with anxiety. And as someone who said that, you know, paralyzing anxiety defines a lot of parts of her life, uh, she wanted to be clear that while just saying, just pray to someone is not helpful, she knows in her own heart that the common grace that medication and counseling provides leads her to a place to pray. It does not replace her need to pray. And she says, quote, sometimes you need to calm down, take a deep breath, and be reminded who God is. And sometimes in order to calm down, take a deep breath, and be reminded who God is, you need some extra help. But when it comes to living in this fallen world, where brokenness still occurs, the answer is not only prayer, but any spirit-driven answer must lead to and flow from desperate prayer. It's the turning point of lament. All right, let's finish up. Number three, across verses five and six, you go from deep pain to desperate prayer to definite trust. Deep prayer, I know, deep pain, desperate prayer. Number three, definite trust. These verses that conclude the psalm simply but powerfully reveal to us where the Spirit leads when his people go from asking what is wrong to what is true. Again, vitally, we need to see there's no indication in this verse that David's circumstances have changed, is there? But his attitude has. That word I in verse 5 is called an emphatic I in Hebrew, and meaning the literal translation would be, but as for me, I trusted in your steadfast love. It's emphatic. It's a resilient trust, a definite trust. And because that trust is affirmed, even in the midst of trial, the man who was in deep despair can now rejoice there's assurance that for the child of God, no matter what happens, he will be okay. He's going to be okay. Maybe not okay as the world defines okay, but in the Lord's economy, he's going to be okay. And he will sing to the Lord. In his book, Prayer, by John Anwuchekwa, he likens the power of prayer to a prescription you get at the doctor. If you go to the doctor for an ailment that's been plaguing you for a long time and you tried to kind of figure it out on your own and you couldn't and then you went to a couple other doctors and they couldn't really figure it out and then you get to this doctor and this ailment has been ailing you for a long time and the doctor diagnoses it. He says, I know what this is. I know what's causing it. I know what's going to help you and he gives you a prescription for a medication. You are walking out of his office with nothing but a sheet of paper. The ailment is not gone, but everything's changed, hasn't it? Why? Because for the first time you have hope. The prescription is not the medication, it connects you to the medicine. And he says, just like a prescription, prayer eases our concerns even before it changes our circumstances. It leads to David speaking in the past tense in verse 6, even though we've gotten no indication his circumstances changed, that the Lord has dealt bountifully with me. This is the promise that we can hold on to, that because of what God has done in his son, Jesus Christ, in all things, we know where this story ends, and it ends well for the people of God.
That's why Paul writes in maybe the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 8, that nothing. You know what nothing means in the Greek? Nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And because that's true, we have hope. Whatever you have faced, whatever you are facing, whatever you will face, because Jesus has restored you by his life, death, and resurrection, one day we will all look back. One day we will all be able to affirm without a question in our minds and say with David, he has dealt bountifully with me, abundantly, fruitfully. We move from what is wrong to what is true. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the story you have called us into. We are so grateful how you give us the pathway to navigate life in a fallen world. Where we can, in the same moment, affirm that Christ has already won. He's already defeated death, but we still feel the pain in the presence of it. Lord, we know we can walk in this complicated space, not with fear, not with uncertainty, but with assurance. Knowing that you will complete the good work that you have began in all of us. And so I pray, Lord, for those who especially right now who are watching online or in here this morning, who are asking in their hearts, how long? How long? Lord, that you would move them to what is true fix their eyes upon you. Allow us as a church family to come alongside and weep with those who weep and to walk to the foot of the cross together where we can say, I can trust you with this. I can trust you with this. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.